When you've got an important message for someone you love, you need to make sure it's as clear as possible, with no chance of being misheard or misunderstood. For example, your toddler has somehow made it inside the pool fence. Uh, I may have some experience at this. Uh, he spotted a ball in the middle of the pool and he starts walking towards, the uh, towards it when you see him. And so you scream at the top of your lungs, stop, don't move. Uh, when there's someone you love, you want to make sure your communication is as clear as possible and that the message gets through. Uh, or here's another example, some of the marriage propositions, some of the big ones that you see. Uh, Skywriting, billboards, announcements during packed sporting events. Uh, this is communication that's designed to impress, to make a point. Uh, it's designed not to be missed. It's true that when you love someone, you'll do everything to make sure the message gets through, that the message is clear. And when it comes to communicating the Christian message, Paul's point in this chapter is that prophecy is the best way for that to happen. On the other hand, speaking in tongues isn't. And that's the comparison we see. Uh, now, we're going to have a look at what he has to say about tongues and prophecy in a moment, but first I want to just spend a few minutes thinking about what we mean when we use those words. What is prophecy? What is speaking in tongues? Uh, because there's certainly plenty of debate about both of them. So firstly, prophecy. We do get some idea from the Old Testament about what prophets did, uh, even if I don't think it's exactly the same here in the New Testament. So let's think about the Old Testament. Uh, as a general rule, Old Testament prophets brought God's word of challenge, encouragement or judgment to the people. Uh, they called the people back to God and back to God's law. Uh, we normally assume that it's always about predicting the future, but very rarely is it about predicting the future. It's nearly always about speaking God's word into the present situation. Occasionally it would be something like, in so many days this will happen, thus says the Lord. But even in those sort of predictive things, a lot of the time it was uh, a warning. You know, if you don't repent, this thing will happen. Uh, we think, for example, of Jonah, and Jonah had the message to go to Nineveh, and uh, does anyone remember what his message was? 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, did it happen? No, it didn't happen because it was a warning. Uh, if you don't repent was the assumed uh, total part of the message. This is what will happen. And the people threw themselves on God's mercy. Uh, so prophecy, that, that's prophecy in the Old Testament. Most of the time it's just speaking uh, God's message to the present situation. That's pretty similar to what's going on in the New Testament. But it does seem like it's stepped down a couple of steps in terms of authority. It has a lower level of authority. Uh, it was something more like, here's what God is saying to you in this particular situation, uh, and it, it seems to bring to bear all that God already has written in uh, the Scriptures up to that point. So, for example, Acts chapter 15, uh, Judas and Silas deliver a letter from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, and, and uh, we read this. The men, Judas and Silas, were sent off, went down to Antioch, they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. 
So they were prophets. And, and the message that they brought was one of strengthening and encouragement. Uh, in Acts 21, a few chapters further on, it, it even seems there's this, uh, as if Paul feels okay about going against a prophecy. Uh, so in Acts 21, uh, God's told Paul to go to Jerusalem, uh, but then he, uh, Acts 21, he lands in Tyre, uh, and uh, Luke writes, finding the disciples there, we, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, the brothers in Tyre, urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So, so through the Spirit, so God is saying to them, if you go on, something bad's going to happen to you. That's a prophecy. But what did Paul do? When, when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. So Paul seems to think, okay, I've got that word from God. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that on board and I'm still going to keep heading. Uh, so prophecy is directing God's word to a particular situation to encourage, to guide, to build up. And I would suggest it doesn't have the same authority as prophecy in the Old Testament. Okay, that's the Old Testament. And uh, the first part of the New Testament, we come to 1 Corinthians 14 and uh, we see, verse 3, that the prophet speaks to strengthen, encourage and comfort. So that's what we've learnt so far. Uh, verse 24-25 in uh, our chapter today, prophecy can convince an unbeliever that he's a sinner and that he'll be judged. Uh, that's like the Old Testament as well, isn't it? Prophecy should include something of our response to God. Uh, verse 29 seems to suggest that a prophecy wasn't automatically to be tested, uh, to be accepted. It, it's to be tested and weighed up. Uh, verse 29 says, after a prophet speaks, the rest should carefully weigh what was said. Uh, which I think in the first instance means, is it false? Uh, is it consistent with scripture or, or, or not? Uh, is it wise? Does it build up and comfort and encourage. Now, presumably what that means is that there are times when the prophet doesn't do that, when it, he doesn't get it right. Uh, not necessarily that he's a false prophet, but he's saying something that uh, is maybe not encouraging or helpful or on the money. A couple of other points from this chapter. Verse 32 says the prophet is able to control what he says. Uh, he, he's not sort of... Um, inhabited by the spirit, you know, like a medium, if we, we watch it on a movie, where he just sort of takes over control. Uh, he doesn't become a loudspeaker. Verse 32 says that the prophet can stop and start and he can choose when he's going to deliver that message. Uh, one final thing to say, uh, we saw this a few weeks ago in chapter 11, that women can prophesy. And that's got something to say for what happens at the end of the chapter, which talks about women being silent. So uh, chapter 11, women are able to prophesy before the whole church. But also, just to, to put alongside that, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. So how do you put together a woman can prophesy but is not to teach or have authority? I think what that means is that prophecy... Uh, is not as authoritative as teaching and is maybe something a bit like encouragement, speaking God's, what God has said in his word and, and saying, here's, here's a word for today. Maybe you can chat with me about that after. So that's prophecy. What about tongues? Uh, well, tongues, um, chapter 12 tells us that 
that's a gift that God gives to uh, some people, but not all. Uh, verse 30 uh, of chapter 12 tells us uh, that not all Christians get the, uh, will uh, receive the gift uh, and there are lots of Christians who won't receive the gift of speaking in tongues. But what is the gift in tongues? There's two basic um, ideas. One is that it's another earthly language uh, and that's certainly the case in Acts chapter 2 uh, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that it's a form of prayer and it's in a language that's not normally understood by people, uh, which I think means any people, no matter what language you speak. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, I think, gives us a hint when it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but have not love, I'm a clanging symbol. Uh, so it's been suggested that Paul's talking about tongue speaking there where he talks about heavenly or, or, or an angel language that uh, maybe tongues is uh, a heavenly language uh, that certainly would fit with the idea that God can understand it but not uh, most people. Uh, verse 4 says that tongues encourages the person who speaks the tongues but it's not an intelligent thoughtful encouragement Verse 14 says uh, it involves praying with your spirit rather than your mind, which I think means something like praying with your emotions, but, but you're not thinking about uh, the, the, what you're saying. Uh, and so verse 13, Paul instructs those who speak in tongues to also pray for the ability to interpret, to understand what they're saying. Uh, in other words, uh, that God will help them to be able to know what they're saying so that they can be encouraged with their mind and can encourage other people. So another point, speaking in tongues is not a bad thing. Uh, it's not something to be shunned. Verse 18 says Paul speaks in tongues more than all of them and uh, he wishes that they would speak in tongues. Verse 5. Uh, well, that's a quick sketch of tongues and prophecy. Uh, so let's turn to the passage and, and remember what our big idea is. When you love someone, you'll do everything you can to make sure you give a clear message. Uh, in this case, if you love your brothers and sisters, you'll be keen to prophesy uh, using intelligible words rather than speaking in tongues because prophecy is about being clear and that's the way you encourage and strengthen them. So that's what Paul says in verse 1. Follow the way of love. Uh, some versions say pursue love. And how do you pursue love? What does it look like? Eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So why is prophecy so important if you want to show love to people? Well, verse 2, uh, follow Paul's argument. Tongues doesn't make sense to anybody except for God. Whereas verse 3, prophecy strengthens, encourages and comforts. And so down in verse 5, Paul says that the prophet is greater or more useful or more helpful or more encouraging than the tongue speaker. The loving thing, if you want to show love to someone, is to communicate to them clearly so you can build them up. And then he gives three examples about how useless it is uh, to say something that nobody understands. Verse 7, the, the out-of-tune piano, the, the honky-tonk piano to the extreme. Uh, you can't sing along to it. No one knows what note is being played. Uh, or, or verse uh, 8, a bugle, 
that's bent or broken. The soldiers can't hear the sound and, and they won't know when to charge or when to retreat or when to salute if they can't hear a clear note. And thirdly, verse 10 and 11, if someone speaks another language, someone speaks Russian, it doesn't matter how smart the Russian speaker is or how slowly they speak or how loudly they speak Russian to me, I can't understand it. They may as well be in another room. And Paul's point is clear. If someone's speaking in tongues and no one can understand you, why are you bothering Uh, Verse 12, he says, It's great to be eager for gifts, but you should look for the ones that will build up the church and that do it in a clear way. And and he says, Seek to abound in them. Work hard to do those ones really well. So how eager are you to communicate to your brothers and sisters clearly and build them up? If it's musical instruments, how hard are you practising your musical instruments? Uh, If it's preparing prayers, how are you spending a good amount of time to prepare those? Uh, uh, Or your Sunday school lesson, or kids' talk, or Bible study. Uh, Love for our brothers and sisters makes us work hard so that we can communicate clearly. Uh, If we love them, we'll want to be clear. Uh, Let's think about church as a whole. Uh, Are there any habits and ways that we do things that have snuck in that make... Uh, our church services are uh, less clear, especially to visitors. Uh, Do we need to explain what's going on? Uh, Now, you may not be up the front here, but I don't think that lets you off the hook. Uh, Are you constructive? Do you give good feedback to those of us who are up the front and be specific about what you found helpful or what you found unclear? I don't know about others, but I love specific comments about how clearly I'm communicating. If everybody's falling, uh, nodding off when I'm talking, then I'm wasting all of our time. Uh, tell me what you thought. Say, be specific. Say, I followed the intro, but you lost me when you moved on to your first point. That's helpful. Or, I don't know, I can't see how you got that application out of verse 15. And that'll help me. Bad communication's my fault rather than yours. So let's help each other uh, because of love to communicate clearly. Now that's for believers. If it's important for believers, how much more important is it for unbelievers? And that's the point Paul moves on to next. Uh, Look at verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Now, most non-Christians who drop into church find the bits we do in English weird. Don't know, the singing, the standing up, the sitting down, the praying, the singing. What? That's weird, isn't it? Uh, we flip through this big book and everyone seems to know where it is except for, except for them. So just imagine if they walked into church and the people were talking in a language they couldn't understand, but worse than that, everyone was doing it and no one was making any sense. It would sound like a fish market in Moscow, I think, and they would think everyone was crazy. Now let me suggest that's not an experience likely to make someone want to come back to church. But that seemed to be what the Corinthian church thought. They seemed to think that uh, if they all spoke in tongues, that would convince non-Christians to join the church. They seemed to think something like this. If the non-Christians could just see what a great show we put on, how spectacular it is when everyone's speaking in this 
foreign language or this language that we never learned, uh, then they would be really impressed. But Paul says in verse 20, stop thinking like babies. You big babies, grow up. You've got it all wrong. Gifts are not about you being impressive. They're about others being encouraged. Tongues won't convince anyone. And then to support his argument, he he quotes Isaiah 28. Uh, uh, That's there in verse 21. Uh, Verse 21. In the law, it's written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Uh, Now, the context is interesting. Back in Isaiah's time, God had warned Israel to, to stop following idols but they'd ignored him, they disbelieved. And so God said, well, if you won't listen to me, maybe you'll take notice of some foreigners. I'm going to send Babylon to conquer you. And when you hear them outside your city walls and they're speaking this strange language, then you'll know it's actually me speaking judgment against you because of your unbelief. The tongues will be a sign of your unbelief. But that, even that's not going to work. And then after Paul quotes that verse, he gives his conclusion in verse 22. Tongues, therefore, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. There's been a fair bit of confusion about how that verse fits, but here's my take on it. Strange tongues won't convince unbelievers to repent. Tongues are just a sign that shows someone's unbelief, not not the person who's speaking them. Uh, I think what he's saying is when someone's up the front is speaking in tongues and an unbeliever walks in, it just confirms their unbelief. It it just leads them even further into unbelief. It it doesn't clear things up. It just uh, uh, shows their unbelief. Tongues are a sign of judgment to the unbelievers who walk into the church because it doesn't move them any closer to belief. Just like the Babylonian language outside the Jerusalem walls was a sign of judgment on unbelieving Israel. On the other hand, prophecy is for believers. It leads to believers. It produces belief. Well, why? Well, it's been his argument all the way along because prophecy is clear. Look at verse 24 to see how it works. But if an unbeliever or someone who doesn't understand comes in while everyone is prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged or called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. That's interesting, isn't it? A non-Christian will come in and say God is among you when he hears clear words in a language he understands, not when he sees some spectacular show of heavenly language and the miraculous. Everyone proclaiming clearly the truth of the gospel convinces outsiders that they need to get right with God. Well, that's where Paul finishes his theoretical section, verse 25. Uh, From verse 26, he moves on to what that looks like in a practical day-to-day level, what what our meetings should look like. 
how they should look different because of this principle of clear communication. So see there in verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers? We've got the theory, let's go to the practical. When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. So they're the different things you should do during the service. There should be a song and a prayer and a sermon and a message and so on. And and then Paul gives the first of two broad rules, two guidelines when it comes to deciding whether to include something or not to include something. Uh, All of this must be done for the strengthening of the church. And uh, verse 31, he adds uh, instruction and encouragement. So there's the rule. You hold the ruler up against an action. If it doesn't strengthen or instruct or encourage, cut it out. It's got no place in a church service. Uh, You you don't have a memorial for on Anzac Day, I don't think. Uh, I think you don't have a political speaker come and tell you about something coming up. It's got to be something that encourages or strengthens or uh, instructs. So if John wanted to do a liturgical dance in church, well, we would say, will that encourage? No, it's not going to encourage us if he stands up here and does a dance. Uh, Well, then we don't include it, do we? That's the rule. Uh, And then that's rule number one. Uh, Guideline number two is right at the end of the chapter, down in verse 40. It says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way because God is a God of order. Why? Well, if things are not done in an orderly way, communication isn't clear. If everyone's talking at once, you can't understand anything. Church doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't encourage. Now, the reason Paul has to make this point uh, about doing things in an orderly way is because there were three groups he identifies that were disorderly. Uh, Three sets of people who were making it hard for everybody else. Uh, Firstly, the tongue speakers... Uh, Then there were prophets, and then thirdly there were the women. And Paul's got some specific instructions for each group. So firstly, the tongue speakers. Look at verse 27. Uh, If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. Uh, That's fairly clear, isn't it? Uh, One at a time and only two or three speak. Not everybody has to speak at once. Wait till next week. It'll, you know, it'll wait. And if there's no interpreter, there's no tongues. That's what it means to do things in an orderly way. Secondly, there's the prophets, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what's said. That's the bit about checking whether it's actually encouraging and true and uh, godly. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So once again, only two or three. Uh, In other words, if two or three have already spoken and you've got something else to say, just write it down and say it next week. It'll it'll last. Uh, And if God gives a message to someone who's sitting down, then the person up the front can choose to stop and wait till that other person speaks. You don't just talk over the top of each other. Uh, You do things in an orderly way. It's not a circus and no one will get instructed if you're all just talking at once. Finally, he comes to the women. Look at verse 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the churches 
They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, okay, that sounds really hard in modern ears, doesn't it? Uh, But we need to remember the context. Uh, The first thing to say uh, is that these are the third group within the church who've been told to be silent at particular times. Second thing to say, uh, this is not a blanket silence because Paul's already said in chapter 11 that women can prophesy in church. Uh, So he can't mean they're they're never to speak. Now, uh, one view that I think really fits all of the the different Bible passages together about what what women uh, could and should be doing in church uh, is that this comment about women remaining silent is specifically about the the weighing of prophecy, uh, that it's the, the, uh, the leaders or the, the elders of the church who should be deciding whether a prophecy is uh, appropriate and valid and true or not. Another thing that's probably likely is that the women in Corinth had been talking over the top of other people. Uh, perhaps when another prophet was speaking, they'd just start talking. Or, or maybe during the, the weighing up and the deciding and the thinking, they, they just started talking. Uh, and the comment about, if you've got a question, ask your husband at home or wait till you get home, maybe that is uh, to do with the women and the men are sitting on opposite sides and uh, it's during church that the, hus- you know, the wife calls out across to the other side, what do you think about that one, dear? Do you think he was on the money there? I don't think he was right at all. Now, you can just imagine how something like that's going to be uh, disorderly rather than orderly. When someone else is speaking, Paul says, be orderly, listen so that you can learn. And if you don't understand, wait till you get home to ask. Well, that's the end of Paul's book of church practice. It's taken up three chapters. Uh, Now he summarises what he said so far. Verse 39, here's the summary. Be eager to prophesy because it's clear. But don't forbid speaking in tongues. It's useful, but you have to interpret it. And there's, uh, that's the summary of uh, chapters 12, 13 and the first half of 14. And then verse 40, that's the summary of the, the last part of uh, chapter 14. Do everything in a fitting and orderly way so that everyone is built up. All right, that's the chapter. Let's have a, a, th- a think about what that might mean for us here at Ashfield. I think we can tick the box for being a, an orderly bunch. I think we're pretty orderly here. We, we sit back, we, we, we do things in turn, uh, decently and in order. I think that's the motto for the Presbyterian Church. Decently and in order. Yeah. But what about this one? Be eager to prophesy. Verse 39. Be eager. Uh, strive. Look for opportunities. Are you bursting to tell other, your brothers and sisters here, what God's teaching you? Are you zealous to encourage other people? Do you pursue opportunities? Do you text? Do you phone? Do you make appointments? Do you have coffee? Do you put yourself out to comfort and encourage and build up others? That's what Paul says love should drive us to do. Do you pray that God would give you the gift of prophecy? Uh, the, the ability to speak God's word in a relevant way into people's lives. Uh, when someone uh, gives a post that 
says, well, had an amazing time or I've had this terrible experience happen, pray that God would give you the ability to speak God's word into that situation, to encourage or to rebuke or to correct or to lift up. Be eager to prophesy. But more than just the desire, do you work hard to excel in those gifts? That's there in verse 12. Strive, work hard, study, read, plan, pray, prepare, write. Because you love the brothers and you want to see them built up. Oh, here's one challenge for us. Uh, What about weighing up carefully what's said? I don't know if that was a a spoken thing or, or whether it was meant to be quiet and thoughtful. I wonder how often we take time to think through applications of what God's been saying to us. I think probably most church services don't have enough silence uh, where we can just think and uh, spend some time with God. We like to fill time up with noise. We're uncomfortable with silence. Uh, Let's give God the opportunity to work in us uh, as we weigh up what other people are saying to us. And over it all, let's make sure we do it in love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you'd help us to understand these things. They're difficult, they're, they're, they're hard concepts, uh, they're hard to hear, they're hard to understand, they're hard to put into practice. Uh, but we pray that over them all, Lord, that we might love each other and that we'd build each other up and we do that in a way that's clear and encouraging. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.